everyone. Welcome to a brand new show on devchat.tv. This is a DevOps show. We are still determining the title of it at the time we're recording this, but let's just call it the DevOps show for right now. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I am a principal engineer at Chef Software and formerly one of the hosts of the Food Fight Show podcast. Uh, this is in some ways a continuation of that podcast, but it's also a brand new podcast. And with me are two fantastic panelists. Uh, Lee, how are you doing today? Just another day in paradise now. Another day in paradise, excellent. And hey, this is Scott Nixon, how's it going? Going well, uh, you two wanna say uh, where you work? Sure, Lee, you wanna go ahead first? Sure, so I am the uh, principal engineer and president of Fuzzy Logic, a uh, DevOps as a service consulting company based out of Seattle, Washington. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, good. I'm Scott Nixon. Uh, I'm the founder of Cloud Mechanics. Uh, we're uh, basically a DevOps consulting shop. I have a, a co-founder um, who's kind of part-time at the moment, but uh, yeah, so we're just kind of getting going. So Awesome. Well, it's uh, fantastic to be here. And I suppose I should mention, uh, I am in Seattle, Washington as well, coming to you from the Chef headquarters in Pioneer Square. Nice. So I've been looking forward to starting this podcast with you two uh, for some time now. And I wondered if we might start, I'm always wary of, at, well, I'm wary of attempting to answer this question because no matter how you answer it, someone on Twitter is going to tell you you're wrong. Uh, but what is DevOps? Uh, Scott and Lee, what do you think? <laughs> um, and so it's interesting. So this is Scott. And it, I was, I've actually been at the AWS summit here in uh, Washington, DC this week. Um, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, this is something that's very, very varied by context of where people are coming from. Um, but I think it's very consistently in the DevOps community where people are focused on this. I see that um, there's a cultural aspect to how everybody works and collaborates. There's a kind of a hierarchical organizational aspect. And then there's obviously things around the tools and automation. And I think there's it's some kind of marriage of all of those things that makes it successful. And so that's kind of how I see the ops. Awesome. Lee, how about you? I'm, I'm in a similar boat. Uh, I, I remember when DevOps was the, uh, the hip new thing, and it was very much a, a cultural movement. It, it was trying to bring um, you know, the, the standoffish sysadmins and the, and the grumpy developers together. Um, and as, as it's morphed uh, you know, over, over the years, it's, it's come into its own you know, job title. Um, like, like many, I think that's you know, a bit of a misnomer to have the DevOps department where it becomes its own individual silo. But I also um, understand that I'm not necessarily the one cutting the checks. So if, if an employer wants to call um, me or what I do, you know, DevOps engineering, um, I'm not going to complain too loudly. Hmm. Yeah, but I think uh, my view on it is, so you hear some people saying, oh, it's a technical thing. It's about technical tools. Then you hear others say it's about culture. Uh, it's both. In fact, moreover, I think DevOps is really the intersection between the two in that we're trying to make doing technology less painful than it has historically been. And there are tools that help us do that. But 
it also involves how we treat each other uh, as we use those tools. I remember I read uh, one of the classic DevOps texts, the Phoenix Project by uh, Gene Kim and I think someone else. I'm blanking out at the moment, but, our, but uh, the Phoenix Project. And I tweeted at Gene Kim after I read it and I said, you know, I was actually crying during the first half which is a company in absolute technological crisis because it was so familiar, because I've experienced what those characters are experiencing. I know what it's like to feel like every single crisis just leads to a new crisis and you know, going around on your nights and weekends with this cloud of doom and gloom hovering over your head, dreading what you're going to find. And I think DevOps says it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, there's human cultural aspects that make that better. There's tools that help make it better. And just, the, it, it, I think of the, the classic infomercial line, uh, there, there, is, there has to be a better way. And there is. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I think the better way is collaboration and, and uh, just kind of like being open to working cross-functional in a lot of ways. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really interesting whenever you can sit down with product people, developers, designers, and operations people to, to really kind of like improve that system in a kind of iterative fashion where it, it like everybody like gets feedback and can, can contribute to the overall success. I mean, it's just been really, really fun to do it. So. I remember uh, I used to work at a hosting company as an engineer, and the whole three years I was there, uh, our leader kept saying, oh, we just have to do this, and then it'll be easy. We just have to do this after this, and then things are going to get easy around here. And I think DevOps takes the view, it's never going to be easy, um, but it is possible. And the one constant is however you do engineering now, however you manage your infrastructure now, that's going to change as your business changes and as the world changes. So it really embraces that change aspect to it. Lee, what do you think? I, I think that's right on the money. I, I also used to work at a, uh, at a hosting company and that's where um, I, I consider that position one of the, uh, the founding uh, positions of, of my career where their, their business model, uh, not, not to get too, too off topic, was basically the Borg. Uh, they, they would go around to, to, other host, to other much smaller hosting companies and, and buy them out and then ingest all of their customers into, into their platform. And this, this happened um, several times a quarter. So the, the attitude was very much um, automate or die. And this was, this was about when extreme programming was, was the buzzword. Um, hmm. But but a lot of the uh, the automation practices and you know working very very closely with with developers and with project management and you know keeping keeping an organization maybe not completely flat but at the very least where you would have no problem walking into um, a VP's office and saying hey you know we have a problem or hey I have this awesome idea let's talk about it. Um, all, all of that openness that is, is so prevalent in a, in a DevOps organization now, that, that was happening back in you know, 2005, 2006 era. Um, and it was, it was great. It was very formative uh, for me in, in my early career. And it was, it was very obvious when, when I would go into a new organization and it was, you know, it was similar to that or it very much wasn't like that. And so as, as, that, uh, as those practices, you know, were distilled and refined throughout the, the marketplace that sort of crystallized into DevOps, 
um, or you know some parts got picked up by Agile, and yeah, it's just it's very interesting to see how how it, it's evolved over the last you know ten fifteen years, and I'm I'm excited to see uh, where where it's going to go from here. Awesome. So when we uh, discussed uh, in the pre-call about what we might talk about for this first episode, uh, something that came up is how does DevOps intersect uh, with the cloud native computing movement? I mean, is cloud part of DevOps? Uh, do you have to be in cloud to be in DevOps? Uh, what, what do you all think about that? So I think, I actually think uh, the cloud has just kind of magnified the effect of, of like what DevOps can do. Um, I, I think the, the fact that you can templatize your infrastructure and that, that even, you know, all the cloud providers have, have just reinforced it and continue to make better and better tools to make it to where you can, you know, you can watch the drift. If somebody goes in and makes manual changes to the configuration of, of some, you know, server or whatever, it, you can see the drift and, you know, you have tools that are checking to see if people have made kind of un, um, typical uh, or changes outside of say something like cloud formation systems that, you know, it shows you. I just think that the, um, just kind of the evolution of the tools has kind of made that like you get so much more value and you get, you get, get governance, you get kind of security, kind of automated security checks and stuff that has just made it so much easier. You could do some of that stuff in the past, but a lot of it was like roll your own. You'd literally have to pull out chef and, and, and build more of those checks yourself. There wasn't something you could just pull off the shelf and just apply with a couple of clicks. And so, um, and I think that's kind of like the ever, the beauty, the beauty of the ever evolving, um, you know, kind of what I see is the job of DevOps is that you just keep getting more tools and things that make and so it. And obviously it adds a ton of complexity to it because you have to like learn so many more tools. Um, but at the same time, it then allows you to kind of continue to like improve, you know, what, what is that, you know, you're kind of delivering. And I think because, I mean, because nowadays the fact that you, so there was a, there was a, a, there was a number that was put out and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the organization right now. And they, they basically were monitoring like tens of thousands of Kubernetes nodes and they were finding that the nodes live for only like a half a day. And that's just kind of like a really, really telling number to consider that like this instance of like a running VM only lives for a half a day and then is destroyed. And I mean, I mean, can you imagine how many systems, you know, out there would exist for five, 10, 20 years before they were ever like destroyed, so to speak. So. I remember uh, when I was at the University of Washington, when we were still move, uh, use, er, running, I was in the physics department and we were running almost all of our infrastructure in-house in a data center that at one point the air conditioning had, went out and we had to rig up a cooling system with a garden hose and a fan. Uh, but <laughs> I, it was a clutch. It worked until they got the AC working again, but that, that was a clutch. And what, what did the garden hose do? I'm curious. I don't remember, but our building maintenance person, who was a wizard, uh, somehow managed to make cold air uh, flow into like back misting the fan or something like that. Yeah, something to that effect. Um, but <laughs> something I've 
I found, and what I was going to say is we used to uh, give very affectionate names for those servers. And yeah, they would easily exist five, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, like you said, Scott, our cloud has magnified the ability to do DevOps and the ability to do uh, infrastructure, spin up just what you need, exactly when you need it, and not more. I have found, though, uh, you mostly, I think most organizations benefit from having at least mo some of their stuff in the cloud. I do know there are still uh, companies, there's a couple up here in Seattle, who use on-premises data centers for very specific compute-heavy tasks. Like one of them I, I know does analytics on massive amount of video, and in that case, it does make it makes more economical sense for them to run their own equipment, but they're still running everything else in the cloud. So again, it goes back to that flexibility. I use the infrastructure that's best for your application and business at that particular time. Uh, Lee, how about you? What do you think? Oh, goodness. Um, we, we covered a, a fair amount of ground on that one. Um, I, when, when I think of cloud native, uh, I, I think of the, um, I think it was, the, it was some article on like the, the 12 steps to a, a cloud native application around, and it gave a bunch of uh, proscriptive, uh, fairly tactical. The 12 factor app? 12 factor app, that's the one, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am about four coffees behind today, so you'll, you'll have to excuse me. Mm -hmm. so no problem. When I, of, when I think of cloud native, I think of 12 factor apps. Um, and I, I think that it's, you know, I, I think it's related to, to DevOps, but again, my, my background, I tend to lean more towards, you know, DevOps is a, is a people process and, and more, more cultural and not necessarily, you know, a tool or set of tools. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think it's easy for a company to, you know, achieve DevOps by opening up their checkbook, for example. Um, although in, in many situations that does help. Um, I, I see that a, a cloud native application is, you know, it, it can make certain aspects of, of DevOps culture easier. Um, it can certainly make it um, much smoother, but I, I don't think it's necessary, you know, to say, oh yeah, we have a, we have a cloud native app and you know, with, without it, we're, we are not um, achieving DevOps right. uh, and with it, we are achieving DevOps. I, I think like, like so many things, it's, it's a spectrum. You can, um, you, you can, get closer to the, the DevOpsian ideal. Um, but it, it, unless you're, you know, some gigantic, uh, organization like Google, it might even be impossible to, to be DevOps, you know, 100% DevOps compliant. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there. I totally agree. Go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say, I just, I agree that it's, it's on a spectrum and there's levels of, of, you know, how involved you can get. And if you don't have, your development team bought in on the idea that they're releasing code really regularly. It, it seems like you you have this big missing piece of it, right? But I think there's 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 operational things that I think you can do to support things that are DevOpsy that like and and that can kind of tackle and and make it easier for when code gets shipped. You know, you make it easier with uh, you know and and just kind of managing the long term configuration of that stuff. So I think yeah, the twelve factor is is like such a key piece of this whole methodology, so. Right, I think uh, part of what I'm hearing and thinking is you're never gonna be achieve DevOps and then you're done. Uh, I've, been, I've been on site with a good number of customers and met a good number in the field who they really want 
to buy DevOps in a box, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it doesn't exist. Uh, it really involves a complete change to how, you know, not just the technologies you use, though that might be part of it, but also how people interact in your business, uh, both with each other and with and how work gets done. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of it goes goes back towards the the business needs. Um, you know, Scott, you mentioned earlier that it's um, and I'm I'm deeply paraphrasing again. Four four mm -hmm. months behind. Um, you know, re releasing code uh, very frequently is um, you know that that is an indicator of of good DevOps. Um, mm -hmm. I I would argue that it can be, but it, it's certainly not necessary. It depends on the business. If uh, yeah. the business is wildly successful, but they don't need to release code, say they've got a, a fairly mature application that is that is in maintenance mode, for example, mm -hmm. and there's only a code push, you know, a couple times a week. I, I would say that's that's not necessarily an indicator that they aren't practicing DevOps. Mm -hmm. In that situation, I'd say, you know, hey, how how automated is does that code push go out? Does it get a, a bunch of tests automatically run against it? Does it get pushed out, you know, into production um, automatically and then get uh, you know post deployed checked? Um, if there is a problem, how how quickly is it identified and how smoothly can it be rolled back? I'd, I'd say that th those are. Um, greater indicators of, of DevOps maturity than yeah. just necessarily. Oh, hey, we can. We, you know, we're we're committing a couple dozen times a day and, and pushing out that frequently. Certainly, certainly. There's an organization yeah. called uh, Dora for. Uh, no, I'm blanking. Mm -hmm. Dev Operations Research Assessment. I think mm -hmm. it is. I think they were originally going to call it DevOps assessment, but decided DOA was not the best uh, abbreviation to have be for their organization. Uh, they were just acquired by Google. It's uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren, who's a friend of mine, and Jean Kim, Jez Humble, and uh, Sue Choi. And I remember they had some. They have a DevOps measuring index where it goes through all these different things like are you using source control I uh, can you do how long does it take you to deploy and then I don't know if they give an actual score but they, they gives an understanding of where you are in maturity and related to DevOps as we understand it today mm -hmm. it, it sounds kind of um, kind of similar to the the Joel test yeah from, you know ages and ages ago I, I, I haven't seen the, uh, the the Dora organization's um, checklist yet, but just from the way you describe them, like, oh, hey, that seems very similar to the Joel test. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, less stressful than an audit, I think, at least. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but still, just a, a, good, a good way to at least gain an understanding of where you are. Um, I mean, this is digressing a little bit, but you know, I've had many conversations about the use of measurements uh, in technology organizations, and yes, they can be abused. Yes, you can measure the wrong thing uh, and drive behavior that is not beneficial to your organization. But I think to make any kind of change, you need some sort of assessment of where you are right now and an idea of where you want to go and some way to measure how far you are along to there. Absolutely. If you, if you don't know um, or if, if you don't measure where you are, uh, you can't succeed. And if you can't succeed, then you must fail. Yeah, I'm yeah. butchering that quote terribly. Oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> I'll have to find the the proper application of that witticism and and put it in the chat. 
I remember also there was a book that came out by Jean Kim. I, I should have looked up the name of this, but I'm forgetting it. The System in Handbook or something to that effect. I'll look it up and we'll put it in the show notes. But I remember in it, uh, he gave some statistic for uh, technology organizations that use automation or that do not use automation, it's this many sysadmins per this many servers. I don't remember exactly what it was, but let's say three sysadmins for five servers. Now, organizations that used automation would have three sysadmins to maybe 500 uh, servers. And I know that number has only gone up as, as the scale of the applications the world uses have gone up, but it caused a lot of frights when that came out because a lot of people responded with, oh, well, that means sysadmins are going to be put out of their jobs or be put out of work. Hmm. And what I found, because uh, I, I talked to Jim Ken about this as well, and he said, it's not, put, and I agree with this, it's not putting people out of work, it's using their skills in different ways. Uh, if you're not doing the same task, I mean, humans are, re- or not humans, uh, machines are really, really, really good at doing the same task in the exact same way over and over and over again, which frees up humans to do what they do best, which is troubleshooting when things go wrong or they're not working as expected because that that's always going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The humans are better at creative work and, you know, figuring out better ways to use their time. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the, the, you know, the, the problems we have with even talking about DevOps and like what it is, is because we've combined these two like massive things together, um, you know, running operations and then releasing applications. And it's also got, you know, applic- you know it's got develop, you know, it's, it's hard to be a DevOps admin in, without being a developer as well. And so there's just so much there. Um, and it's kind of, um, I, you know, I, I found myself this week very often in conversation with people and I, it was very clear, like that my idea of what DevOps is, is very different from what other people think DevOps are. Um, and it's, it's sometimes it's just really hard to like always remember that and be present that whenever somebody's talking about something that, 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 uh, they're kind of coming from it from a different angle. Um, and it's kind of hard to get people to even explain what they think, um, it, it is. So, <laughs> um, but you know, for me, one of the things I try to, um, that I think is really, I think is really it. It's underappreciated, I find, in like in some of the small startups I talk to, is the ability. You know, I find that oftentimes they're they've got they've got the the automated uh, deployment, running tests, all that stuff, but they are not focused on kind of their uh, um, templated infrastructure and the ability to rebuild that infrastructure from just like a code base. And I think a lot of times that is one of the things that. Um, can kind of put them at risk on kind of managing the configuration and all a lot of those things. And so it's one of the things that I really try to, um, when I'm talking to startups and, and small software teams to try to like get them to, to think about like, you know, prioritizing that. It's funny because back whenever I worked in big corporate IT organizations, you'd always have these massive processes around it was bcdr which is business continuity disaster recovery and um that was usually like this huge i mean i could like talk for hours about some of the stuff that went on for that but um you know i think we often don't worry about disaster recovery until 
something bad happens, but uh, you know, it, I, I just think it's a it's a it's a very neglected thing that I that I often worry for for folks <laughs> about. So. It's something I think people don't realize how important it is until they feel the pain of what happens when you don't use it. It's interesting as well because uh, a lot of the I, I mean DevOps the application of the principles of DevOps are is new and that's changing constantly. It feels like. But a lot of the principles of DevOps or even the foundations of DevOps-associated technologies, uh, they really aren't. Uh, for example, configuration management, uh, really the idea of it started with the military in the 1950s. And what was going on was as weapon systems were becoming more and more and more complex, and there was that whole big Cold War going on, uh, the military realized it was critical to understand what changes had happened to a system, how they changed, and what the expected configuration was to be. And in that case, it was literal life or death. If they didn't uh, use configuration management, uh, things could go very, very wrong. So it's the, the way we apply these principles is new, but the, the principles themselves, uh, they, they've been around for a while. Yeah, and I, I found myself last night um, having a conversation with somebody who does a lot of ML and AI work. And um, I realized that like, I had never really spent much time thinking about how you would manage configuration management for security of like data so that you make sure. So for instance, like that you make sure that there's not some change in your system that suddenly exposes private information via some API. And I mean, this is around federal government stuff. So there was even more sensitive stuff at scale. Right. And, and I, I, I just kind of got myself like, like, just like, God, wow, there's just like this whole field of things I haven't even thought about. And it's just kind of really fascinating. But it, it's funny because you talked about, um, you know, it's freeing up humans to do other work. And that's the kind of other work that we need to do. And we need to be more focused on security nowadays. And so those are the kinds of things we spend more time on, making sure that we have good, you know, automated checks in place for encryption and that we can look at data and, you know, make sure we have really robust testing around data security. That brought us into a, a point in the conversation where like, there's no logical next step. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can, we can just, just jump uh, someplace. I mean, we, we could go even, we could do a little more history, which is, uh, uh, the person who founded the Toyota production system, Toyota didn't always make cars. Uh, it made te uh, textiles on big, giant looms. And before they made the switch to cars, which they did, I believe, after World War II, uh, what the, the innovative thing they came up with for looms was working with textiles on looms used to be a really dangerous job because if a thread broke, uh, humans would have to reach into the moving machine, very heavy machines. It would tear people's limbs off if they got stuck uh, and fix it. And what the person who put the Toyota production system together for the looms, at least, found was he set up a system where if a thread broke, the loom would stop, and then a human could come, fix it, fix it safely, and then restart the loom again. But there, there didn't need to be any humans involved except when something was going wrong. Well, yeah, I like that. It's a really interesting analogy. and makes me, A broken thread makes me think of, obviously, a programming thing as well. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I never, I never made that connection before. Okay. I'm going to have to do a talk on that uh, sometime. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. 
So when we started putting the show together, we made a big spreadsheet of topics and uh, people we'd like to bring onto the show. I mean, for me, again, Dr. Nicole Forrest Grant is top of the list, but we've also <clears throat> talked about Jean Kim and a few others. Um, we would love, I think, to have them on the podcast and talking about their work, but also just getting idea of understanding how their minds work. I mean, I, I feel like almost like I'd be uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air, <laughs> meeting these these luminaries of the DevOps movement and try and learning how their how their minds work and why what their motivations are for doing what they do. Uh, Scott Lee, what are you hoping to cover on this show? Well, for for me, um, I I always found uh, it. Oh my goodness! I, I cannot talk today. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've, I've always found that the prospect of, of interviewing people who are in in the thick of it um, to be interesting and and fascinating, at, at least personally. Um, so I, I was really looking forward to a lot of the uh, the interview tracks that uh, that folks had suggested. Awesome. Yeah. Per yeah. Personally, I mean, yeah, I'm definitely fascinated to to do more interviewing, um, but I also really enjoy kind of talking about new. Um, mm -hmm new changes, new features, things that kind of are kind of coming into the market. I really enjoy kind of learning and um, having in-depth in discussions about um, how these things can be used and, and um, how things will, ch how that will change things. Um, so. I think it would be fun as well to, I mean, the DevOps field is very buzzwordy and I don't think that's mm -hmm. necessarily a result of DevOps itself, but I always like taking a buzzword and kind of unpacking what's behind it. Like a few years ago, containers was the, the giant buzzword. And I had customers telling me, I want to run all of my infrastructure in containers, including the stateful parts of it, which no, you really, really, really don't want to do that. Um, but until you unpack it and try to unpack you know, what their needs are, what are they trying to do, uh, it's hard for them to see that. So I think that could be a useful thing we could do for our listeners is as new technologies come out, I mean, they're very exciting and I love to try them, but also kind of unpack the usage of them and the kind of situations they're meant for and maybe not meant for at this time. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I feel like uh, containers and well, maybe Kubernetes is more buzzwordy than just the word containers. But Do I still find or Kubernetes is the the buzzword queen, king queen yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. I, I I noticed that at the at the AWS summit today as well. Anything that was Kubernetes related was just all pack full. You know, so. Um, it would be fun to, and there's lots about Kubernetes that we could definitely get into and, and unpack. Definitely. In, in my practice, um, I remember there was a huge uptick about uh, nine or 10 months ago of people, you know, oh, we want a Kubernetes, all the things, all the things. And as, as part of the, the onboarding process, uh, I, I talk with clients very, very, um, low level about their, their business goals and what, what do you actually want out of this? Because consultants are expensive and, and we don't want to take somebody's money unless it's, you know, at the absolute right fit. Um, but once, uh, you know, once we drilled into some of the, the problems that they were having with their infrastructure and, and showing them, you know, Hey, this is, this is what a fully Kubernetes, uh, infrastructure, you know, looks like day to day. And there, there might not be a you know a one to one fit with what you know what you expect versus what you get. And nine times out of ten, that what they really wanted was they just wanted a, a smooth, repeatable way for their developers' code to get in front of customer eyeballs. 
Mm -hmm. um, and Kubernetes is absolutely one way to do that, but there, there's a lot of other baggage that comes along with it that they might not be um, prepared to, to have to manage on their own. Um, and I, I think talking with, uh, with shops that, that have you know, both implemented Kubernetes successfully or even have, you know, have tried to implement it, um, or Mesos or uh, and any of the other uh, containerization orchestration solutions, and then maybe afterwards backed off for you know, business reasons, X, Y, and Z, I, I think that could be some interesting discussion as well. Absolutely. Trying to figure yeah. out, you know, okay, where, where does the big print give it and the small print take it away? Hmm. It hmm. also, oh, sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, 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 I was just like in agreement. I, it, it's an interesting analogy, the big print versus the small print. <laughs> yeah, because so much of that, the small print, I think is, it, there's no clear place to find that. Like there's not, there's not a lot of sites that say, here are the anti patterns, here are the bad case, here are the worst case worst practices as opposed to like best practices for things like that. They're hard to dig out. So. Have, have you seen the, um, the, the GitHub uh, repo of uh, Kubernetes failure stories? Ooh, no, I have not. Oh, I'll, I'll share that one uh, for, for the show notes. That's, that is fascinating reading. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Something else that might be fun to talk about is, the human connections that technology has enabled, like a, a story that I like to tell is uh, Nordstrom is a chef customer and they're, they're publicly a chef customer. And I was talking to one of their engineers and I related the story. It didn't really have much to do with technology, at least not directly, but uh, my mother is a cancer survivor and has had a double mastectomy and she was looking for a swimsuit and she went to a suburban Nordstrom and they had stuff on hand for her. Uh, which made her feel so pressure and uh, so special and valued after this very traumatic experience. And I told this Nordstrom engineer, you know, I know that's that that's not an exception. That's the norm at Nordstrom, and I will do anything I can to make your business successful. And this was at like midnight at ChefConf 2015, I think. So he started crying, which of course made me start crying. And it was it, it was a thing, but it, it it brought us together. Wow, that's cool. I like it. <laughs> Do either of you have any uh, stories like that? Like briefly before we go into picks? Not off the top of my head, unfortunately. Okay, well, we'll, we'll do an episode on that, I think, yeah. in the future. And we can, yeah. we can all prepare beforehand. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. All right. Well, most of the uh, shows on devchat.tv, I think this was started with Ruby Rogues, and it's been continued. We did this in Food Fight and other shows I've been on is the idea of having a few picks as we uh, end the episode. And I have two. Uh, one is I was looking for a good note-taking app uh, for my Mac. And I used to use Evernote, but there were some complications with it. I couldn't do dark mode with it. With it. I couldn't do markdown with it. So I put a call on Twitter and a few other places, got a bunch of recommendations. And the one I've liked the most is Quiver. Uh, Quiver lets me write my notes in Markdown, and then uh, I can also use Vim. I'm a, I'm a Vim user. Please don't hate me for that. Uh, but I can use Vim to uh, navigate around code blocks that I uh, add into it. So uh, Quiver is definitely one of them for me. And then the other is the movie that just came out uh, now on Blu-ray and DVD, uh, Captain Marvel, uh, which is one of my favorite movies that I've seen in a very long time. In some ways, it felt like it was kind of tailor-made for me because I grew up in the Air Force in the 90s. Uh, but 
it it was life-changing is not too strong a word it was exactly the movie i needed at exactly this point in my life so those are my picks uh what about you two you go ahead lee oh goodness uh, you took the words right out of my mouth um, <laughs> i i do not have any uh any picks on deck at the moment but now that i know that this is a regular thing i will uh i will start taking notes and then trying to think of some for uh, future episodes. Awesome. So, all right, I've got some, I've got a, at least two things I can share. Um, so I have a book tip. I read, a, I read a good bit. Um, and I, I feel like maybe a lot of other tech people might find this interesting. So I read a book called the rise and fall of the dinosaurs and it was recently released. Uh, but it's kind of gives you kind of a more modern, um, uh, account of dinosaurs and you know i imagine if you're oh in your 30s or 40s like i am uh you um grew up thinking dinosaurs did not have feathers but now we all know that dinosaurs have feathers so maybe some of our knowledge is out of date and chapter six is like really fantastic about t-rex um and but i won't spoil all the great facts that are in there Mm -hmm. if anybody's dinosaurs so i think that's a really great book so the rise and fall of the dinosaurs and that's by steve Buscemi. i'm not really sure how to spell it um yeah there you go that probably is we'll make sure that's in the show notes um i i don't know how new aws amplify is but i've recently kind of been like exposed to it and learning more about it um it might be like maybe a year old or whatever but it's a really great tool for um, kind of, it's basically a set of templates that allow you to say connect, and it, it actually is like a command. It's a command line tool that allows you to um, say, "All right, I want to run a lambda that's pulling things from a Dynamo DB da- ta- table that ha- that exposes an API gateway, and it just allows you to kind of like easily kind of create like a like a like JavaScript templates and kind of automatically deploy those into your environment on AWS and then um, you don't have to you don't have to spend as much time trying to like figure out how to connect um, to these different services or expose these different endpoints um, and it also includes um, Cognito and uh, which is the authentication uh, framework for AWS as well as Pinpoint, which is now is like an analytics tool and a bunch of other stuff. And um, it's just, it's a really cool way to kind of get started if you're trying to either just do like a test project or build an app um, with Lambda and all these other serverless kind of technologies. So I just think that's a really cool thing. So AWS Amplify. Awesome. That sounds super neat. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that uh, closes us up for uh, today's show. Um, But thank you, listeners, for joining us. Uh, Thank you, those who've uh, followed me from Food Fight. And uh, Lee and Scott, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Look forward to uh, more to come. Ditto. All right. We will uh, be talking to everyone soon. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.